from WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Unnecessary production of your own mind. 
My guest is Larry Loftus. He's a former corporate lawyer, adjunct professor of law, and the author of three best-selling nonfiction spy thrillers, codenamed Lisa, The True Story of the Woman Who Became World War II's Most Highly Decorated Spy, and Into the Lion's Mouth, The True Story of Dusko Popov, World War II Spy, Patriot, and the real-life inspiration for James Bond. And most recently, and the book that we'll be talking about, is Princess Spy, the true story of World War II spy Aileen Griffith, Countess of Romanones. Larry, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me, Tonio. So this was a lot of fun to read in various ways. First off, it's a great pandemic read, since everyone's locked up at home, unable to travel. It was also a wonderful history about Spain's place in the war, much of which I was completely unaware of, despite the fact that I lived in Spain for a year when I was a child. And have, No kidding. Yeah, and I have very fond memories of that. And also, there was this wonderful fairy tale-like, old-style, Hollywood, romantic, screwball comedy aspect of the story that I enjoyed. Right, right. So, uh, you know, as a former corporate lawyer and law professor, is there some connection between law and espionage that draws you into the realm of spy stories? There's not a connection between law and espionage, but there's a connection, a direct connection between law and the research. Because if you're going to write nonfiction, you've got to have a, a source. You've got to be able to prove it. You've got to be able to back it up. And when I was in law school, I was on the law review and a law review editor. And when you write a law journal article, literally every sentence has to have a citation either in a, as a footnote or an endnote, to show where you got the information, every sentence. So I just take that. That's my background. So in all three of my books, uh, you'll see a lot of endnotes. In fact, in The Princess Spy, uh, which actually just hit the New York Times uh, bestseller list, by the way. But in The Princess Spy, there's 63 pages of endnotes. I'd never counted, but somebody counted and told me. And that's intentional because I, I, I have to show where everything came from. All the dialogue is verbatim from a primary source. Most of the information, the detail I get from the National Archive, that's true for all of my books. Um, Aileen was an operative for the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA. So all of her records, all of the OSS files are at the National Archives, and that's where the bodies are buried. So I have to go there. So I went there and spent four days going through all of her files, all of the people in the Madrid office, the people in the Washington office. So that's where I get the details. And you actually wrote about how you had fairly limited and sometimes contradictory information available to you to piece this story together. And so I was, I was very curious about how your legal training helped you to put this together into an accurate and coherent account, particularly since you know, the nature of spy stories is that they are highly secretive, and often there are parts of uh, 
history that that are not released to to the public domain. Right. In fact, there are multiple parts there. The main part is every spy, regardless of their country, they have to sign non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, so they can say nothing. Everything's classified. So none of these spies can see any of their files or anybody of the office that they work for for 30 years, you know, 30, 35, 40 years. So it's all classified. So they're just relying, if they if they write a memoir, which most of them do, they're doing it 30 years later, uh, and they're doing it all by memory. And sometimes they forget, sometimes they embellish, sometimes they make stuff up. So my job is to figure out what really happened, what, what parts are true, what parts are untrue, what parts did they, did they know nothing about. Because, again, they have no access to even their own files, so they can't see what the spy master in Washington is doing or London is doing, the, all the people around them. They have no idea. So that's my job. And that's where the legal training comes in, because every once in a while there will, will be a conflict. And that's where we're trained as lawyers. We're trained with rules of evidence. And that's how you basically decide which which one is more believable. And so we have rules, uh, for example, like there's a there's a hearsay rule that deals with official documents. If you were a tax collector or something and you recorded something in your daily activity, that's highly credible because it's what you do. You recorded it at the time, um, and, and it's there for, for history. So the same thing is true for me when I'm going through the files. If a spy master in uh, you know, Popoff's case, it could be Ian Wilson, his case officer, recorded something you know, on July 21, 1942, that, that's highly credible. And the same thing with Aileen, her own, you know, I've got, she filed 59 reports. I've got all of her reports. I've got all the reports of everyone around her. So that allows me to know, okay, this is a better and higher grade of evidence and is more trustworthy than what someone remembered 30 years later. I mean, I can't remember where I put my keys two hours ago. And so <laughs> spies, you know, they, they, like everyone else, they're not going to remember all the details and get it all correct, remembering from, you know, just their memory 30 years later. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this research strikes me as being like doing a treasure hunt. And I wonder, do you, enjoy, do you particularly enjoy doing this kind of research work? I do. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's what I did as a lawyer when I was writing journal articles. It's, it's, a, it's a treasure hunt. It's an Easter egg hunt. And it's mundane. A lot of it's boring. I mean, at the National Archives, I'm there from open to close for four days going through thousands and thousands of pages. And some of it's boring. But what happens is occasionally you, you come across a nugget. I mean, you get a nugget of gold that you knew nothing about. I mean, I, I, I remember when I was at the National Archives and I looked at Aileen's last report that she filed on um, July 15, 1945. Well, she mentions a murder. You know, Spain is neutral. There's not supposed to be any danger there, but there was. And she mentions a murder in her report. And, um, and it says that so-and-so was murdered. He was a famous, not famous, but he was a notorious Gestapo guy uh, that had been, <laughs> been operating in France and then came to Spain. Anyway, he was murdered. And then her memo says, and two other guys are on the hit list, and more murders will be coming. This is in a file. This is in a report. So none of that is available to the public. No one sees that. Not even Aline, you know, saw that um, because it was, you know, she filed it in 1945. So anyway, you find those nuggets, and, and when I do, that makes all the boring part worthwhile because, I, I you know, I just stumbled across a, 
a, a truly needle in the haystack cool nugget. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Aileen and how she went from being a small town gal to be being recruited as a spy, and and then tell us about her training and how she ended up getting sent to Spain toward the end of World War II. Sure. So she's a small-town girl from Pearl River, New York, a small hamlet outside of Manhattan, uh, like a Rockwellian town, you know, the one grocery store, one butcher shop, one, one barber. Um, and she, when she graduates from college, she wants to join the war. Her brothers had joined the war, but she's 22. She's a, she's a young girl. She's 22, just out of college. What's she going to do? So she takes a job as a model. She's very beautiful. She's 5'9 and beautiful. So she takes a job as a model in Manhattan at this place called uh, Hattie Carnegie, which was the top modeling agency at the time, where Lucille Ball actually started. And But she doesn't really want to model. Anyway, there's a serendipitous meeting um, dinner party that she goes to, and they've set her up, her friends have set her up with a blind date with this guy named Frank, and she has no idea who it is. She heard that he was from overseas, and she thought that was cool, so she goes to the dinner party. Well, it turns out... He is a spy master for the OSS and was there in New York at the time. And, of course, she knows none of that. And he says during dinner, so do you want to be a famous model? And she goes, no, I want to, I want to get into the war. I want to help the war effort. He goes, really, why? So he starts interviewing her. And he interviews her and gets all her reasons why she wants to join the war. And, and she says she wants to go overseas. And he says, do you speak any languages? And she says, yeah, I'm, I speak French, or a little bit of French, but I'm fluent in Spanish. He says, hmm. So he says, well, if you get a call from a guy named Mr. Tomlinson, then, you know, do what he says. You know, he, he might be able to get you, you know, something in the war effort. She knows nothing about who this Tomlinson is, nothing about what they're talking about while they're recruiting her. So she, he, he calls, she meets him uh, at a hotel, and he basically has her, they send her to the farm, which is a 100-acre complex outside of D.C., where all of the OSS operatives are trained, and we actually borrowed the program from the British. The British had been in this for two years already, and they sent their best guy, uh, William Fairbairn, who is the father of hand-to-hand combat and the creator of the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife, very famous knife that's still used by special forces around the world today. So that's who trained her, uh, among other among other people there. So she spends three weeks Every day from, you know, sun up to midnight training, and she fires all the guns, all the pistols, all the rifles, all the machine guns. She learns how to shoot a Tommy gun. She learns how to knife fight. She learns how to kill with a knife. She learns how to make a knife out of a newspaper. So she became really, in essence, a female version of James Bond. What we know of James Bond, she was the female version. Beautiful, articulate, engaging, charming. Oh, and by the way, trained to kill. So... That's her training, and they decide, okay, she's fluent in Spanish, let's send her to Spain, which is where Madrid and Lisbon were the two hubs of espionage, because Spain and, and Portugal were neutral. But Madrid was the bigger of the two. That was the, the biggest place, the beehive of espionage was Madrid, swarming with Gestapo, swarming with SD, which was the German Nazi intelligence. And so they heard from day one, they sent her as a coder, so she would code information during the day for the OSS, and then... After she's there for about a year, they decide, hey, we could, you know, she's really good. Let's get her out. So they send her out as a field agent, and she's going to cocktail parties and German restaurants and, you know, to meet, you know, run into these Germans or people that we think are German collaborators. And uh, she, 
she goes to everything, flamenco parties, uh, bullfights. And so she blends into society so that she can meet the right people, discover the right information. There, there are many people that the OSS suspects are German collaborators, Nazi collaborators. Some of them may be funneling money from Germany through Spain to Argentina. So she's tasked to root these people out and to find them. And it's fascinating how Spanish high society is plugged into that whole thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, those two, the, their two pastimes are bullfighting and flamenco. And everybody across all levels of society go to both. It doesn't, you can be the wealthiest person in the country or the poorest. Everybody goes to those two things. So she knew she really kind of had to become an expert on both. Uh, and as American, she didn't really understand bullfighting or didn't really like it, but she knew she needed to go. And, you know, one day she's at the, the main bull ring in Madrid and none other than Walter Schellenberg is a few rows down from her. He was, uh, basically, Hitler's spy master, the head of Nazi and foreign intelligence. He's there, sitting next to a, a woman that Aileen thinks is a Nazi collaborator. So all that intrigue is going on, and while that's going on, she's she's also being sort of not recruited, but she's being sought after by numerous men who either are smitten by her or fall in love with her. So underneath all of the espionage that she's doing, you've got this romance stuff because there's a famous bullfighter, Juanito Belmonte who is a celebrity there, he, he falls in love with her and sends her flowers and chocolates all the time and takes her to dinner. And then an OSS agent she had trained with at the farm falls in love with her. And then uh, an American diplomat who actually bailed her out of jail, Eileen was arrested. She was sent out on assignment to Malaga, and, and when she was arrested, thrown in jail, and so this American diplomat, Barnaby Conrad, comes to bail her out of jail. He's smitten by her. And then eventually the fourth man is the man she falls in love with, is Luis Figueroa, who at the time was the Count of Quintanilla, nobility there, and becomes the Count of Roman Owens. And uh, New York Times in 1947 said was the fifth wealthiest man in, in the country. So Aileen knows none of that. All she knows is his name is Luis Figueroa. He's nice. He's Spanish, but he speaks perfect English. So that one, that man she falls in love with and eventually marries. And he was also a bullfighter, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Oh, Juanito okay. Bulmonte was the bullfighter, but okay. um, she did spend a lot of time with Juanito because she knew for her job, for espionage, that because he was a celebrity, he could open any door, he knew everybody, and he could introduce her to everybody. So she regularly went out with him, uh, as well as her partner from the OSS that she would go out with, Edmundo LaSalle, who was Mexican by nationality, but was also an OSS spy, and uh, so they would often go out together. So she would basically be on dates, and she would be gathering information on people or, or, or uh, checking out suspects. So her entrance into Spanish high society, um, men were obviously very drawn to her, but also high society women were also drawn to her. There was this, in Spain, even when I was there, there was this mystique about Americans in Spain, and the Spaniards were, were fascinated and allured by Americans and American culture and, and just the whole kind of mythos of America. Yeah, in fact, it was both. It was both the fact that she was American and beautiful. Uh, when she's first there, she goes to this, this cocktail party, this reception, 
and there are some Spanish women there playing a piano and singing. So Elaine hears and joins in. And next thing you know, they, they're all excited because she's an American. And so they want to become friends with her. And on the on the high society level, there's other players. One of the key players in the story is Gloria von Furstenberg, who eventually later in life marries uh, Lowell Guinness from the famous Guinness beer family. But Gloria von Furstenberg had married an Austrian count and was uh, highly suspected of being a Nazi collaborator. In fact, the OSS had files on her. They have a subdivision called X2, which is counterintelligence. And they had, a, they had opened a file on her because they believed that she was a Nazi collaborator. She obviously spoke German fluently. Her husband was in the German army. Um, so they suspected her. Well, she Gloria was one of the most beautiful women in the world at the time uh, and was already a, a model herself, a high-fashion person. So Aileen and Gloria, it's not that they were competitors, but they both knew who each other was. They would see each other at restaurants because there were two famous German restaurants that people would go to. Horcher's, which I mentioned in my first book, Into the Lion's Mouth, was the best known. The owner had come from Germany, and it was like maybe the nicest restaurant in Madrid. So everybody would go there. The other one was called Edelweiss. And so Aileen would go there, uh, typically with her, her partner in arms, uh, Edmundo LaSalle, and, and they would watch. And occasionally uh, Gloria would come in with a high-level German operative. Hans Lazar would be her date sometimes, and he was the press attaché for the Nazis in Spain. And he had a, 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 as many as 200 people working for him, huge. So all that's going on, and so you have that high-society element mixed in. And she would go to these high-society parties, where, same thing, it's a German that was wealthy, Prince uh, Hohenlohe, very famous family, and, and uh, they were Austrian, but they were suspected of helping the Nazis. And so she has to go to his castle, Finca, uh, you know, outside of Madrid, and uh, same thing, investigate. So lots of stuff happening. And there's also a lot of fascinating history about Spain's role in World War II, including... Franco's relationship with Hitler and the Nazi war effort. Could you tell us about Spain's position in the war? What was, hap what was so happening? Spain and Portugal, I mean, there, there are four neutral countries, Spain, Portugal, Turkey, and Sweden, but Portugal and, and Spain were the hubs of espionage. And Spain was particularly important because everyone knew, the Allies knew, and the Axis countries knew, if you could get Spain in your favor, then you could control Gibraltar because it's right on the edge. And if you controlled Gibraltar, then uh, which was owned, which was owned and, and run by the British, but you know Spain's all around it. It's just this little tip at the at the tip of the country, and so everyone knew if you could gain control of Spain, you could invade Gibraltar and then control the Mediterranean. And so Franco, who was very savvy, like Portugal, wanted to remain neutral, did not want his country to be either Nazi or communist. They wanted just wanted it to be Spanish. Uh, same with Salazar in Portugal. But he knew that, that Hitler was so powerful that he could just march his army across the Pyrenees and invade or bomb if, it, if he wanted to fly the planes in. So he would appease them. He appeased Hitler. And he would talk to talk. You know, he met Hitler in Hendai, 1940. And Hitler's thinking, OK, he's going to join us. He's going to join the Axis. This is great. We'll invade. And then he had a plan. Hitler had a plan to invade Spain take over Gibraltar, and then they would control the Mediterranean. It's a formalized plan. And he thought Franco would just go along, but Franco was basically playing him. 
because Franco knew I have to give him something because he's otherwise he'll just invade. But uh, but he didn't want to be he didn't want to be a Nazi satellite and and he didn't want to be a communist satellite. So he played the cards well and pretty savvy. And Hitler they had a six hour seven hour meeting in Hendai and Franco you know acted like he was going to go along but gave him such requirements. Well, I'll join if you do this this and it. And it was impossible. And, and Hitler later said, I'd rather have six teeth pulled than, than to meet with that guy again. <laughs> so Franco initially has Spain sort of warm and warm and fuzzy with Germany. And then as Germany starts to lose the war, the, the waves of you know defeat start coming. Then he moves closer to the Allies and then moves all the way over to the Allies. So it was a process. So he was very savvy, as was Salazar with Portugal to remain neutral and to do so without invoking an invasion from Hitler. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the OSS at the time and the state of American intelligence in the world at the time. And the OSS was not held in high esteem by the American government even. Tell us about the dynamics around the OSS. And it was a young fledgling operation at that point. They had very little funding and not much support from the U.S. government and State Department. Well, yeah, and it's not that they didn't have support. It's the State Department saw them as competition. Um, the OSS forerunner to the CIA, and, and it's our first organization, and we're behind because the war's been going on for two years. The British are way ahead of us. They understand espionage, as do the Germans, <laughs> you know. So we found this organization, the OSS, to, to be our foreign intelligence. And so when we start the war, we're, we, we're playing catch-up because we don't have everything set up, all the infrastructure, all the spies, all the people in place, all the training that the other countries do because we're the, you know, we're the new party to the, to the war. And, yes, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, William Donovan, the head of it, General Donovan, with spending his own money, he was a, he was, a, he was basically a famous lawyer. That the law firm is still there, uh, Donovan Leisure, very famous law firm in New York. He basically used his position to fund all of his own expenses. He he received not a penny from the government to fund what he did, and he had to travel the world as as head of the OSS, and ironically enough, basically bankrupted himself to fund the OSS. Really, an incredible contribution by this man. But back to Spain, so when the OSS goes into Spain, the ambassador of the State Department sends Carlton Hayes as the ambassador to Spain. And Hayes doesn't like the OSS because he thinks, in general, that espionage is bad. And if you do an espionage on Spanish territory, which everyone did, every country had spies there, he just thought it was bad faith. Like, well, how am I supposed to do my job and keep Franco happy and make the Spanish love Americans if we're doing espionage on their soil well he was naive because every single country in the war had spies in madrid all, well all over spain and they were all doing espionage there but there was that conflict not between the government but between the state department and the oss and that was the reason why carlton hayes thought it was thought they were like competition mm -hmm. now spain was neutral during the war but Tell us about how dangerous and risky it was to be a spy in Spain at the time. And talk and, about her cover. Sure. So, in general, since Spain is neutral like Portugal, a spy doesn't have necessarily day-to-day -day danger. 
although there are things that did happen and strange things, and sometimes there was danger. Aline was followed many times. I'll leave, I'll leave it. To, I won't spoil the reader, uh, spoil what happened by telling you who was following her, but she was followed from time to time. And there was danger. There's a murder in the book, and I confirmed it with the, the person, uh, actually the, the sons who gave me the memoir of the person who removed the dead body, which was Robert Dunev. So there was there was some danger, but spies do have to live with these false identities. And so her cover was basically as a secretary for the American Oil Commission. The, the American Oil Commission was tasked to we, – we sold uh, oil to everybody, and so we didn't want Spain to turn around and resell the oil to Germany. So we told Spain, look, we're going to send an oil commission there to make sure you don't – you know, that money doesn't end up on a German submarine in one of your ports. So – that's her cover. She goes into the first floor of the American Oil Commission, uh, which is, in fact, the American Oil Commission. Then he goes up to the second floor, and that's all OSS. Those are all OSS operatives on the second floor. So once she's up there, then she's in her real job, which is as an OSS coder. So she's coding and decoding information. But then, as I mentioned, she's given sort of a third role, and that is, oh, by the way, we want you also to be a field agent, so then she would go out at night to parties and things and, and on weekends to, to galas and, and events around. So she's kind of burning the candle at both ends. She's a, she's a coder by day. She's investigator by night and by weekend. And meanwhile, she's got these suitors who are all in love with her that she's kind of mingling in with her, her professional and, and espionage life as well. So all that's happening simultaneously. And among the suitors that she had, there was this one particularly interesting guy named Pierre. Could you tell us about him and and the mysterious nature of that relationship and of him? Sure. So Pierre is a is another OSS operative that she meets at the farm, which is the training facility. And of course, they're assigned to different places, and so he, he's not he's not sent to Spain, and she doesn't really they they. they I don't want to say that she she didn't fall in love with him, but she was smitten by him. She was intrigued by him, and she wanted to see him, and likewise on his end. In fact, I think he did fall in love with her. He gave her a ring and, and some earrings and so forth. So they're sent to different places. Well, he just shows up one day in Madrid. She's like, what are you doing here? So a number of things happened between those two. I won't spoil it, but a number of things happened between those two. And then her Madrid boss says, oh, by the way, you need to tell Pierre to do this in France. Uh, we, we need to give him this information. Well, it was a lie. What, what, what her boss was telling her was a lie. And, and she doesn't know this until, until after D-Day or until after the, uh, the operation to invade southern France, not D-Day. But she suspects And so it. she wonders, like, was I set up? You know, what, what, was this a big lie? What's, what's the story? So... Aileen doesn't know whether, is this guy a double agent and we've just tricked him, you know, or, or is it super top secret? So I'll, I'll stop there, but there's a lot of intrigue as to who this man is, what he was really doing. Gregory Thomas is Aileen's boss and ran, he's the head of the OSS office in Madrid, and he intentionally lied to her and what he said to tell Pierre. So all of that plays into this second level, third level chess match of what's going on in Madrid, and is this guy one of ours, or is he a double agent, and, and he's one of the people that's romancing Aileen. So it made it terribly terribly complicated and, and added quite a bit of tension to the story. Mm -hmm. 
And tell us about the state of the war when she started working in Spain, because she entered roughly about a, a year before the end of the war. She, she actually enters on February 8, 1944. So she, and everybody goes through, you have to go through Lisbon, so you, whether you're going by ship or by uh, flight. So she takes the clipper over, lands in Lisbon on February 8, and two days later she's in uh, Madrid. So she's in Madrid from from that time on, and for about a year she's a coder. And then from uh, basically about February of '45 till the end of the war, she takes on these other duties as as a field agent. So Spain, as I mentioned, had uh, Franco had been very coy in in what his intentions were, leading Hitler to believe he was going to join them, but never did. Uh, never allowed troops. He refused to allow any German troops on Spanish soil. So he played the game extremely well, and then as as the you know the hands are played out and we the allies start winning more battles, then he starts basically cutting off Germany on things that they wanted. He you know he eventually stopped selling them Wolfram. Wolfram was a key ingredient that everybody needed. It, it was a it's an alloy that that they put in uh, bullets and uh, tanks and armor. So both sides needed this. It was vital. And so um, both Spain and Portugal were were selling it. So he starts he starts cutting Germany off as he, as he knows. Hey, I, you know I think I think the Allies are going to win this. So little by little, as the war progresses, he's colder and colder and colder to Germany. Um, and then towards the end, the Allies say, "Look, we want to trap all the German money there. We want to trap the the Nazi collaborators. We want to trap Nazi war criminals that are going through your country, uh, and we want you to help us." And he does. So it was a it was quite a chess match that Franco is playing, and, and it was funny because not funny, but it was revealing that I read Carlton Hayes's memoir. Carlton Hayes is the U.S. ambassador that's meeting with Franco all the time, and so he explains all this and was impressed at sort of the chess match that Franco is playing with Hitler and appeasing him, all the while growing warmer and closer to the British and the Americans. So it was quite a uh, masterpiece of maneuvering that he pulls off. So how important was Aileen in actuality to the war effort? Well, no spy really has a big impact on the war, other than probably Dusko Popov, who was the greatest spy ever. I mean, he warned about the Pearl Harbor attack. He he was the key guy to deceive the Germans during D-Day. That, that's the one spy that really had a major impact on the war. Everyone else plays a role, plays a part. But what she was doing was very important on both ends, as a coder and as a field agent. As a coder, um, the information for the Allies would come in from basically from French resistance, uh, say there's a troop movement, say there are panzers that are moving someplace. And so the French resistance would get messages. It might be a radio wire that would come through, or British intelligence, and, and so that message would come to Madrid, because Madrid's our hub. It's basically everybody's hub. So the information would come, and it could be about a German troop movement, a panzer movement, ships seen, anything. And so the coder, and this could be at 3 o'clock in the morning, Aileen's on call. Aileen and her partner in the coding room, Robert Dunip, they're on call 24-7. So they may be called in, hey, we just got a, a coded message in, and you have to have a coder to decode it. So she could be called in at 3 o'clock in the morning, vital information uh, that has to go out immediately 
to the proper parties. You know, the proper parties might be General Patton or, or Field, Field Marshal Montgomery because they need to counter what the Germans are doing, or we need to send, you know, some Air Force bombers in to bomb that location. And so that effort, and we don't know what happens. I mean, very, very likely she decodes it and encodes it back out on the way out. And that information saves hundreds or maybe thousands of, of American or British lives because of the action that we take based on that intelligence. So that happens every day through the war. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a very coordinated effort. Correct. Mm-hmm. So after Germany surrenders early in 1945, tell us about Operation Safe Haven and her role in that and, and what happens at that point. Sure. So we start to learn and figure out through near the end of the war that Germans are doing two things that we need to stop. Number one, you have they looted a lot of the, the Nazis like Goering and people looted artwork. You know, and this is in Belgium. This is in France. And so they gained these priceless paintings. So they looted these paintings and, and other artifacts. And they were going to try to get them out of Germany. Germany's losing the war. We've got to get them out. So they're going to get these paintings and artifacts and money out of Germany into their end destination, which was typically Argentina, sometimes some other countries in Latin America, but typically Argentina. And so we knew that. So part of Safe Haven was we have to stop that. We have to find the artwork. We have to find the money. We have to find the bank accounts and stop it, trap it, trap it in Spain. So we can confiscate it. And then at the same time, we also knew that there were a lot of Nazi war criminals that were that knew, hey, we're losing the war. We got to get out of Dodge. So the war criminals, the, the way to get out was to go through Spain, through Madrid, and then to catch a ship to Argentina. So safe haven was to stop both, to find the war criminals, capture them and to capture and stop the money. And so Aileen and her partner, Edmundo LaSalle, are the two main people to do that. Edmundo had actually had been sent to London for special training. He comes back, and then the two of them went to work. And so Aileen's doing reports. She's got 59 reports that she filed more than any other Madrid agent by far. Uh, and she's saying, look, this person's a war criminal. This person's a known Gestapo agent. This person, you know, we need to get and find, blah, blah, blah. And they find money being funneled, laundered into Portugal. Coming from Spain, uh, Aileen's supposed to find and trap uh, the people that are in Spain that are sending money maybe to Mexico to get it out of the country. So all of that's going on, and she's right in the middle of it. That's her towards the end of the war. That's her main job is safe haven. She and Edmundo, and they went at it. Another thing that I wasn't nearly as aware of was how widespread the anti-Hitler sentiment was amongst the German military. And right. I, we know that there were a couple of assassination attempts, but I, I had no idea that the anti-Hitler sentiment was so widespread throughout the German military. Could you tell us yeah, about that? Yeah, multiple attempts to assassinate him, take him out. Yep, many attempts. Why, did, why, did, why was the military so against him? Well, they figured out, I mean, these are very... Uh, highly educated, both not only in just schooling and university, but in military training. And these are savvy people. You know, these are people that are seasoned generals, field marshals. 
and they're not stupid. I mean, they, they sat at some of the speeches. They heard Hitler. And across the board, uh, you know, they, they really, this, this guy's a madman. You know, if this guy takes over our country, if he becomes the chancellor and, and gains control, he's going to throw us headlong into war. He's going to start invading countries. So they knew the handwriting was all. They figured out who he was. And so they started scheming. They started planning. So the, all of the all of the, the the senior military across the board started scheming to take him out. Now the only thing they differed on some like like Rommel uh, and some others just wanted they wanted to arrest him and to bring him to a formal trial so the German people could see you know this, here's what this guy did. They would bring him up on on criminal charges for invading countries and so forth. And so that was what part of them wanted. And the others just said, no, that's, that's too difficult. Let, we'll just assassinate him. So you had, you had a very formal, and they had a very formal plan uh, not long after he assumed power to take him out. And uh, part of the group, you know, the, the official plan was to capture and arrest him, but the actual guys that were going to invade the Reich Chancellery, they were just going to shoot him. That was their plan from day one. They were just going to shoot him. So how did Hitler escape such widespread opposition? Incredible. I mean, this is the man with nine lives. In fact, there were more than 40 attempts to assassinate Hitler, and all of them failed. I mean, the closest one was at the Wolf Slayer where the bomb, you know, he put the, the, the bomb in the conference room where he was, but it was, it was a strange day. It was really hot. They had opened all the windows. And the, because they'd opened all the windows, that, that that allowed the concussion of the blast to be dispensed. So while a couple of people were killed and injured, Hitler had minor injuries. So they just lucked out. And on another one, they put a bomb on his plane. They had it was very <laughs> it's quite ingenious. They received C4 from uh, the British, and so they put this C4 inside a wine bottle. So one of the colonels said, "Hey, look, I'm giving this bottle of wine to Hitler." compliments of general trexkow so uh give this to hitler on the plane well little do they know they put a time fuse in there so that the the bomb would go off when the plane was airborne so it would kill hitler mid-flight and no one would kind of know who killed him well the problem was that fuse failed so this guy's waiting at you know did you know did he kill him did he kill him did he kill him and so when the plane lands and he realizes Hitler's unharmed, he knows he has to race to replace that bottle of wine that doesn't have wine in it. So he does. Fortunately, he goes there and he replaces the bottle of wine. But while they, they, they miss being uh, you know, captured or whatever for what they've tried to do, Hitler nonetheless once again escaped. Every story was like that. Hitler was just the guy with nine lives and seemed to keep evading uh, assassination. And there were numerous collaborations between German high officers and British intelligence and, and perhaps even American intelligence. Um, the German military really were not interested in invading other countries and, and taking over the world like Hitler. Did. Correct. Yeah, as I was mentioning, these were basically Prussian uh, officers, Germans trained in the Prussian tradition of basically gentlemanly soldiers like Rommel. And they had tried to reach the British on multiple occasions. Canaris, who was the Abwar military, the Abwar was German military intelligence, not Nazi intelligence, because Nazis is a party. 
they had their own intelligence. The Nazi Party had the Gestapo and they had the SD. But the German military had the Abwar, and the Abwar, the head of the Abwar, Admiral Canaris, had actually met with and tried to warn the Allies about the first invasion when Hitler, you know, crosses into Poland in, uh, in 1939. And so Canaris on multiple occasions was trying to get information to the Allies. And then once the war breaks out, it's still trying to keep the Allies, you know, in communication so he can tell them what, what is happening, what's going on. He's trying to get meetings with, with secret operatives that are in Switzerland. Um, and, and so that is going on throughout the war. And Canaris is one of the original conspirators to take out Hitler because, again, he knows, too, that Hitler's a madman. So uh, Canaris eventually is found out. He's part of the July 20 putsch. He's found out and he's executed, as, as were hundreds of German officers. In fact, as I point out in the book, there were about 5,000 German officers who either were executed or committed suicide after the failed putsch, including 12 generals and three field marshals. So it was pretty devastating. Wow. So let's let's move on to the uh, Hollywood screwball comedy aspect of this story and her romance with Luis. Tell us about how that happened and some of the the miscommunication and and kind of comedic dynamics that were happening between Aileen and Luis. Sure. So during the war, she meets this man, uh, Luis Figueroa, who she knows nothing about, but he is the, at the time, he's the Count of Quintanilla. That's his title, his nobility, and then later becomes the Count of Roman Owns. But it's a very famous family. The Luis's grandfather, who at the time was the Count of Roman Owns, had been prime minister of Spain three times. He was King Alfonso's principal advisor, very famous. I mean, we would think of like maybe the Kennedys, but far bigger and far more famous was this Figueroa family in Spain, as they are still today. So all that she knows is this very handsome, very articulate, uh, he spoke English perfectly. So she's kind of intrigued by him, kind of smitten by him, and so they fall in love. Uh, They eventually get married, and when they become engaged, Aileen figures, look, I've got to, you know, I've got to tell you something. She has to get it off her chest. So she tells Louise over dinner one night, hey, I, I want to tell you, I was a spy. You know, the war had just ended, but she said, I was a spy for the Americans. And he didn't believe her. He started laughing. He said, oh, come on, Elise, you, you know, don't pull my leg like that. You were never a spy. Come on. And she was like, well, <laughs> I told him, you know, it was the perfect cover. So she didn't feel the need to keep pressing it. She did tell him. He didn't believe her, and that comes in handy later after the war when she's recruited to do some odd jobs for the CIA because one of her colleagues when she was in the OSS was a guy named William Casey. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Casey becomes Ronald Reagan's CIA director. And, of course, he remembered Aileen from the OSS, so when they, he would hear they'd, they were going to go to Paris or to Zurich or someplace, he would give her odd jobs, talk to this person, find, see if you can find this out, tell me who this is. And so she would do these jobs, never telling Luis, her husband, uh, who never believed that she had been a spy in the first place. And after the war ends, Frank Ryan, who was her initial recruiting contact, he starts the British American Commercial Corporation, which is kind of mixes espionage and capitalism in the immediate post-war 
European theater. Talk about what that was about and the role that Aileen played in that or didn't play in that. Sure. So it's very mysterious. President Truman, after the war ends in Europe, President Truman makes a decision that we don't need to have foreign intelligence, period. So he closes down the OSS on August 15, 1945. Well, the intelligence people in Washington and, and in all the posts around the world realize that's ridiculous. You know, we can't, you know, we have to have intelligence. Everybody else does. So they know, the intelligence people know, we can't just drop, you know, where do these files go, you know? So the OSS head, William Donovan, and the British head of his counterpart, the BSC, British Security Coordination, which is MI6 operating in America and Canada, William Stevenson, and Charles Hambro, the head of SOE, Special Operations Executive, over on the British side, they all decide we're going to form this entity. And they form this entity called the British American Canadian Corporation, One, each person being represented. The British was William Stevenson, the American was Donovan, uh, I'm sorry, the Canadian was Stevenson, the American was Donovan, and Hambro was the British. And so they later changed the name to World Commerce Corporation, but for a couple of years it was BACC. So this organization is very mysterious. My background is as a lawyer, so I can tell you they incorporated in Panama. And the reason I can tell you as a lawyer that they incorporated in Panama was to keep it secret. <laughs> There's no other reason to incorporate in a foreign country. But it was headquartered in New York City, and that's where Frank Ryan was based. So these principals who become the board of directors decide to tap Ryan, who was a lean spy master. He was head of the Iberian Peninsula for the OSS. He's going to be the president of this entity, and the ostensible purpose of the agency was to foster international trade, which it did do, because they all of these war-torn European countries, they didn't want to fall to communists, and they needed, they needed material. They needed cotton. They needed food. They needed everything. So he felt like, or the agency felt like, we need to help foster that, which they did. But I thought the interesting thing was all of the people recruited for this thing, every single one across the board, the board of directors, none of them have any experience in international trade. They're all operatives. They're, they're all operatives in intelligence at the very top. And so all of the people that are then recruited for the various offices were OSS officers. So Elaine is recruited to immediately run, open and run the Madrid office, and another OSS agent is recruited to open the Paris office, and another one, the Zurich office, and on down the line. So Eileen is recruited immediately by Ryan into this sort of mysterious, you know, are they still going to do espionage? We've got to have cover. And, and, and any espionage outfit always has cover. I mean, you always have to have a cover thing that you do, a real business. Otherwise, you know, everyone's going to know what you're doing. So... She does that, and then he says, okay, now I need you to go to Paris. So she goes to Paris, and then he was about to send her to Zurich as her third assignment, and then she finally says to Ryan, hey, look, you know, this has been fun. I love my job. I love you, but I want to get married. <laughs> you know, Lewis and I have been trying to, talking about getting married for a couple of years now, so we want to get married, and I need to leave the company. So that sort of transitions her through that outfit, that age. And by the way, so the CIA is not formed until – two years after the OSS closes. So it certainly appears that BAC slash World Commerce becomes the interim agency during that. And once the CIA starts, well, this 
other company, World Commerce, just quietly folds its doors, even though it was very profitable. So that makes you kind of wonder, hmm, what were they doing? Mm-hmm. So all of that's part of the, the tail end of the story. Yes. Well, this was a fascinating story, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. And again, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about this. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. And be well. Thank you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Larry Loftus. He's a former corporate attorney, adjunct professor of law, and the author of three best-selling nonfiction spy thrillers, Codename Lisa, The True Story of the Woman Who Became World War II's Most Highly Decorated Spy, and Into the Lion's Mouth, The True Story of Dusko Popov, World War II Spy, Patriot, and the Real-Life Inspiration for James Bond, and most recently, in the book that we've been talking about, Princess Spy, The True Story of World War II Spy Aileen Griffith, Countess of Romanones.
My next guest is Mike Edison, author of You Are a Complete Disappointment, a triumphant memoir of failed expectations. You were the former editor and publisher of High Times magazine, and you've done all kinds of writing. You've been a freelance writer. You've written numerous books. Your previous memoir was I Have Fun Everywhere I Go, and... Your book opens up with your father's deathbed scene, and maybe we could start there. We always hear these touching stories of redemption and reconciliation with people on their deathbeds. So what happened in this case with your father? Yeah, this wasn't, this wasn't that. Um, you know, it had all the, all the makings of a nice poignant deathbed scene, but it kind of turned you know, almost comically, ironically comically, sour and turned into sort of, you know, a heartbreaking mess. I went to see my dad. It was Father's Day, and he wasn't doing that well. And my brother said, hey, we should go out and see Dad. He was out in Arizona where he lived at the end of his life, and he had an oxygen mask on, and, you know, he was breathing very heavily, and, uh, you know, tubes coming out of his arms, and the whole thing, you know, buzzers and beepers and nurses running around. He was in pretty bad shape, and he said, oh, I'm glad you're here. There's something I've been meaning to tell you. You are a complete disappointment. Wow, right, really? But he was just getting started. And he had been practicing the speech in his head clearly for like a long time. And he went on. He said, you're broken and you need to be fixed. You think you're a hotshot writing books and living in New York City? No one wants to read your stuff. And on and on. And he was really working himself up. And he finally said, and you're the only person in this family who was fat. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? I took it on the chin because uh, I'm not going to swing back at a guy in the hospital, but it was horrible. The nurses were coming running in. And his, the numbers were racing on these machines, and they kind of carted him off to die, and I, I left, you know, a heartbroken mess. I walked around crying for a long time after that. So who was your father, and was he this way with everybody? No, he was not this way with everybody. And to tell you what, if you had met my dad, you would have liked him because he could be very charming. He was a big subscriber to the Dale Carnegie School of Winning Friends and Influencing People. Of course, the problem with that is it's about as deep as a puddle. It's great to meet people and, and make small talk. And he was a master of small talk, but a lot of people never saw this side of him. He kind of saved his ire for me. I'll tell you what my dad was. is He was a, he was a snob. And that means, really, the purest definition is someone who thinks that where you went to school and how much money you make and, you know, what you do for a living is really uh, somehow tied to your value as a human being. And it's certainly not um, the, way, the way I look at the world. So when, why, and how did your relationship with your father go so far south? Wow, well, that's the million-dollar question. And, you know, you, you write a book, and I'm trying to find some compassion for this guy who was so angry, so angry in his last moments on Earth, and he's yelling at me. You know, he's ranting, he's raving, and he says to me, you know, his whole speech goes, I can't believe someone as smart as you likes professional wrestling. And I'm thinking to myself, really, this is like our last moment on Earth together, and this is for the anger that you held. Once upon a time, I was the editor of a professional wrestling magazine. It was the first job I got when I got out of college. 
And it was great. I was like 24 years old. I ran this magazine. I had this kind of cool office on like the 84th floor of the Empire State Building. But professional wrestling was like the lowest cultural, you know, I mean, absolutely the nadir of what a human being might possibly enjoy. And he carried this anger with him. And that's what I want to know. It's like, what are these unresolved issues that our relationship means so little, but what you really bring with you after all this time we spent together is that you're mad at me because I used to watch wrestling on Saturday morning TV? I really don't know the answer to how he got this way. I, even after, you know, a year or two years writing this book. But I'll tell you this, it started when I was a kid. When I was seven years old, when he told me to grow the hell up because I liked watching uh, horror movies on TV. Or grow the hell up because I like comic books and they're dumb. Comic books are stupid. The irony, of course, was that 40 years later, he told me he really liked watching the Spider-Man movie. And I said, but wait a second, wait a second. But you know, he wasn't willing to have that conversation either. You know, I mean, I guess the culture uh, caught up with them. It's weird. I, you know, I don't know how someone gets this way. I know his parents were cold, and it wasn't a house of a lot of love. But nor was mine, and me and, and my brothers, who are much different than I am, uh, there's a lot of love in our hearts. You know, we, we didn't go in that direction. We went in the exact opposite direction and embraced compassion over cruelty. But your brothers turned out very differently than you. One of them became a lawyer and the other was a banking executive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and they're okay guys, too. You know, that's not the route that I took. But it's a narrative that my father, you know, could, could appreciate because my son's a lawyer, my son's a, you know, financial dude. I'm an artist. It's where I started when I was seven, eight, drawing cartoons and wanting to play, you know, in a rock and roll band, you know, and buying drums when I was like just a little kid and thinking about being a writer and always playing with cameras and stuff. And that to my father was like not a way for anyone, you know, to take a guarantee to your future. He really tried to dissuade me from any of these things. And then again, you know, I'm living my dreams. I mean, this is what I do. I play music. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm here talking to you on the radio today. I live in New York City. It's a beautiful day outside here. This is pretty cool. I don't remember my brothers playing, like, you know, Wall Street when they were little kids. <laughs> you know? I don't remember my brother being eight years old and playing a lawyer with his friends. I was playing rock and roll, and I'm still doing it. I'm living my dream. And my father once told me, he said, I hate you because you get to live your dreams, and I didn't get to live mine. And from what I read about him in your book, that seemed like a statistical impossibility considering his approach to life. Well, that's the whole thing. If I were to be successful with my <laughs> way I lived my life, it meant that his system was flawed. It was a complete indictment of his way of life. If I could be successful without you know, going through the hoops that one is supposed to do. I mean, one went to law school, the other one got a business degree. You know, I went to art school, then I dropped out. I dropped out to be in my rock and roll band. And then I went back to school, I got into Columbia University. So now I'm an Ivy League dropout. And, you know, but at the time, someone said, hey, do you want to go to Japan and play in this band? We're going to go to Tokyo. And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. Because if you don't do it then, when? You know, you've got to take those opportunities when they, when they come up. There's no, I'll wait until it happens again. And I'm here being able to tell you that it was the greatest thing I ever did. I have no regrets about any of this stuff. You know, I find when you talk to people, I'm looking at my dad and other people, and since I've written this book, and to talk to so many people who had similar experiences, people tend not to regret things they've done. They regret the things they haven't done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And your father was, was such a killjoy in that way, and you were virtually the opposite. You were a real fun seeker 
And how did you become such a fun seeker, considering your family? Well, consider the alternative. I mean, it starts, I don't know, when you're a little kid. And what did I love when I was a little kid? Like I said, horror movies and pro wrestling and, and comic books and, and rock and roll. Um, these are things that are fun. I love pizza. I still love pizza. Who doesn't love pizza? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't love pizza. My, my old man. I don't know why. Because he lives in fear of calories or, or cholesterol or carbohydrates because someone told him that it wasn't healthy. So you can't sit and enjoy a piece of pizza. And that's, that's the lesson, you know, of, of this book. If there is a, you know, a takeaway from this is to be in the moment. And there's so much happiness that you can sort of grab onto, you know, in this world. And if you're good at it, you can share it with your friends. And my dad was successful, you know, and you made money, but no matter how much money you make, you cannot improve on, you know, pizza and root beer, you know, with your kids. How's that going to get any better? And you couldn't see it for the, you know, the blessing it was. It's, it's tragic. It's sad. It took me a long time to find compassion for him and see that he was really, you know, kind of a tragic figure. Despite his objective success, he had a nice house and all that. Um, if you're screaming at your kid on your deathbed, I, you got a problem. It's not really the way I want to go out. I'm guessing uh, nobody really wants to go out angry. So many people in our culture get that joy of life beaten out of them by parents like that. Why, why were you immune to that? And your story was sounded pretty rough. Well... I don't know that I'm immune to it. I mean, I certainly had, had to fight with it. I got to college. I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. I was definitely maybe acting out a little bit because, you know, I had a confidence crisis because I had been told, you'll never make it. You're not good enough. As it turns out, I am good enough. You know, I'm, I'm actually good at some stuff. Um, but to listen to you know, my dad, you'll never be published. No one wants to read this stuff. And then even when I was published, it was writing isn't a job. I don't know how that works out because I'm keeping the lights on and I have for a long time by doing this. You know, listen, again, I love to be in the moment. I, I think having fun is, is key, and I don't think it's that hard either. I think my father was miserable because he didn't choose happiness. And I'll tell you what, if you talk to my brothers or you talk to other people who knew my dad, say, oh, of course, he was very happy. I'm telling you, if he was screaming at his kid in his last breath on earth, he wasn't all that happy. He had a lot of unresolved issues. He carried a lot of baggage from his parents, too. And it's sad, you know, when, it, when a father tells their son that he resents them because they're living their dreams. Boy, oh, boy, you know, if you have kids and your kids are living their dreams, they think they're thrilled. Mm -hmm. Now, you interviewed and spoke with many people in your family, an extended family. Did anybody else in the family see this darker side of him besides you? Uh, yes, a few people did. Definitely his sister had seen this. She was also an artist, and she used to tell me, oh, you and me, you know, we're like the outliers in this group. She was very much not, you know, unlike my dad. You know, she went to a good school. And she did well in school, and then she had a really good terrific job. And she says, well, you know, I'm doing these things, which so people are sort of like giving me a buy because, I, you know, I went to this great school and I have this job. But really, she was a, a weirdo just like the rest of us. I mean, I, I use that with a smile because she wore black, so she was a beatnik. We're talking, you know, going back some years. But she said, I got away with it because I was getting A's in college, and that's all that anybody really cared about. But years later, my dad was very dismissive of her, and she was a wonderful person. I mean, she was a saint. She went on to, to run and start this charity and bringing relief to people in Western Africa, largely in Mali and other places. This is, great, this is a great story I love telling. I'm so proud of her. 
She met Robert Plant one time in Mali. I guess he was there doing some music with some local musicians. And she called me up and she said, have you ever heard of a band called Led Zeppelin? And I said, uh, well, maybe. I think they were popular when I was in high school. Why do you ask? She said, oh, you know, I just met this man, Robert Plant. Apparently he's their singer. He's lovely. He wrote this large check for my charity. And I said, well, that's terrific. That's really amazing. That's awesome. And she called me back a couple of days later and she said, have you ever heard the song called Stairway to Heaven? And I said, well, and I'm being coy, of course. I said, yeah, I think it was popular when I was in high school. Why do you ask? And she said, oh, I thought the guy who wrote me this big check. The least I could do is buy his record. <laughs> and I thought it was really nice. I was so proud of her. My father was very dismissive of her just because, I don't know, going to Africa to do charity work was something he considered like kind of hippie and weird. She's the only person I know personally of whom it could be said she saved lives. She was not a person you would scoff at. She was the kind of person you should be in awe of, and his reaction was exactly the opposite. You have this great joy of life, and it really comes through in your writing, in everything that you write about, even the, you know, the darker the better, because that's where that kind of what you call unhinged enthusiasm and unhinged orientation towards happiness shines through in this really wonderful way, and I, I love the way you describe lobster Cantonese and the way your father would eat London broil. And I'm wondering, how did you get into writing? And what is it that you enjoy writing about most? Well, I think the writing came pretty naturally, the desire to tell stories and to document things. And uh, I think originally, you know, I wanted to, I was taking pictures and I kind of wanted to make movies and the idea of being a photojournalist, because that's words and pictures, which is what movies sort of are. And um, I don't know, I just, I just found that uh, it came pretty easy to me to write. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, it was, it was easy to get stuff on the page. And I worked at it, and then I fell into this thing where I was making a living doing it. And I wasn't writing any great literature, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I was all of a sudden a working writer. You know, I put the 10,000 hours into it and realized that I really like doing it, and as I got better over the years, I didn't write my first book until I was almost 40 years old, I guess, aside from all these like, really dirty porn books I wrote in the 80s, which was a pretty cool job, but it was certainly a you know, crime against the English language, some of the crap I was writing back then. But, you know, you write 28 short novels, you know, you sort of get the flow. When I was in college, I had trouble writing like you know, eight pages of you know, some nonsense you know, for some, some theory class. And later, I was writing, you know, a book a week. But I was also getting paid four or 500 bucks a week to write them, which is a lot of money when you're like 23 years old in New York City in 1980, whatever it was. It was great. I always had money in my pocket. I don't know. I like to read. You know, maybe that's a better answer. I admire other writers. I admire people who think. I admire people who can make me laugh. I admire storytellers. And it's sort of, how, why do you become a musician? It's because I like listening to music, right? I, I cook. You know, I'm not a professional cook, but I cook all the time because I like to eat. You know, it's so maybe it's you know, the, the tail wagging the dog or, or something like that. I heard a Chuck Berry record when I was a kid, the American Graffiti soundtrack, right? The 50s were like a big fad in the 70s, you know, happy days in American Graffiti and all stuff. And the second I heard Johnny Be Good, I knew what I had to do. I had to learn how to play the guitar and do that. I think maybe with writing it was a little bit of the same. I read something that I really loved. Maybe it was The Catcher of the Rye. Maybe it was Sherlock Holmes. Maybe it was a Kurt Vonnegut book. Maybe it was a comic book. You know, maybe it was a story in Rolling Stone or Circus or Cream, but I said, wow, this is great. I want to do that. So it sounds like you use every excuse, every opportunity to channel your creativity and your passion for life. 
yeah, I don't think I need to make excuses. I think that's what life is. Well, for me it is. I mean, not everybody's the same. My brothers aren't artistic souls per se, but they're good guys. You know, <laughs> they, you know they, they love their children. They don't beat their wives. Maybe I'm setting the bar a little bit low. <laughs> but, but they're good guys, but they don't have any desire to throw paint on canvases or, or write books or, or you know, write songs or anything. Um, not, not everybody does. But they are kind, and I think they're relatively happy, and uh, they're not mean, and they're not going around pulling the wings off of flies or anything. I think I think that's great. You were a punk rock musician, and I imagine you still are. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I am punk rock and a musician, or a punk rock musician. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I guess it's just a vehicle to channel your creativity or your joy of playing music. Sure, you know, I mean, what's punk rock, really? I mean, it's so funny when I think when I was in high school and liking the Ramones seemed to be such a radical thing. I knew this girl, she had purple hair, she lived across the street, and she got beaten up for having purple hair, you know? Other girls spat on her, you know, and called her a dyke and stuff. And, you know, it's ironic that the guys thought she was a slut because she had purple hair, and the girls thought she was a dyke, and everybody kind of hated on her, but she was just this really nice girl. You know, normal as could be, except she was already, in, you know, a little disenfranchised and decided that she liked, you know, punk rock. You know, now no one would think twice about it. But at the time, it was kind of like this very loud political statement to, you know, dye your hair and you know, wear weird clothes and stuff. You know, it's, it made sense. It was the music that I think I wanted to hear. You know, something that was a little bit angrier than the Beatles, a lot angrier than the Beatles. Something that actually spoke to me, not to people who were 10 years older than me. And you also have this kind of inclination to make fun of and confront social conventions, so that that seemed like a logical venue for that. Well, satire is very important, and I learned a lot from Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine's got to be one of my greatest influences. And talk about wanting to be a writer, certainly reading Mad maybe you want to be a cartoonist and. Of course, because, you know, speaking truth to power and challenging authority, which is not where my parents were at, that's where exactly what my dad didn't like. Teachers were always right. And the lesson was, you must always obey adults. And, you know, then you learn that it doesn't take too much when you figure out that people are kind of full of it. You know, just they, they, they will lie to children. Adults will just lie to children. You know, they'll lie about anything, they'll lie about drugs, they'll lie about whatever, and they, they create this culture of fear, you know, this is your high school record that will follow you out throughout your whole life, so you better behave. You know, it's like this weird religious threat of the afterlife, you know, you know of torture and pain if you don't behave now when you're 15. Finch. You misbehave. Yeah. 15's a great time to do it. Yeah, that's true. I also love the way you wrote about classical music as you... And how how did you make that jump from the punk side of music to classical music? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked, and thank you very much for uh, reading that part of the book. Oh, I finished um, the book in the middle of last night. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's been a while since I've read books. I mean, I loved reading Hunter Thompson and Philip Roth and Catcher in the Rye and all that stuff, and it's been a while since I've heard a voice like that, and uh, you're you're carrying that tradition. Really really flattered. I am not worthy. You are Uh, worthy. um, You you actually are worthy. Trust me. Thank you very much. I I mean, I like to think my stuff is good, but I'm really just kind of, I don't know what to say for that kind of praise. It's uh, it's way, way too much, but thank you very much. Oy vey, what was, that? <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> How you made the leap from punk to classical ah, music? classical music conundrum. 
Yeah, I, I, you know what's weird? I should have been listening to classical music 20 years ago, 30 years. I, should have, I don't know why I came to it so late. Because I like music, and I like all sorts of music. I didn't start out listening to punk rock music. I started out listening to what was on the radio, which was great when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, because Stevie Wonder was having great hits. And, you know, and uh, it was the end of the Motown era, the very end, the Temptations had a couple things, and um, the end of Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, the songs were good. The bands were good. They were like people who wrote songs. Um, and it was like doing great stuff, like great Philly soul, and all the music was good on the radio. Okay, and you sort of take that from there, and you start experimenting, and you discover David Bowie, uh, and, and the Rolling Stones are so important to me because I'm a guy who's curious, you know. So I hear the Rolling Stones, and then I read about some book about them, and they say, "Oh well, we love Muddy Waters. We think he's the greatest." So you go out and you buy a Muddy Waters record, which, by the way, wasn't very easy to do. In you know a suburb of New Jersey in the '80s, there's no internet, there's no pushing a button to get Muddy Waters. No one I know has even heard of the guy. You know, it's weird. I remember I went to a Disco Mat in New York. I bought his soul music records because I read somewhere that soul music was a cool thing, and I brought home an Aretha Franklin record and an Otis Redding record, and I brought it to school. I said to my friends, the Aretha Franklin record just blew me away. I was like, holy cow. And I said, you got to listen to this great record, Aretha Franklin. And they're like, why would you want to listen to some old black lady? It was, it was a different time, you know, like these like white kids I went to high school with. It just was so exotic and, and weird. It was a much, much different time. Anyway, I got to classical music just by curiosity. I had heard it on some movie soundtrack, and I said, wow, you know, that sounds really good. And I always kind of liked the idea of these big symphonies. And I went out in the record store, and I bought a couple Beethoven CDs, and I tried to judge right, and I bought the Fifth Symphony and the Ninth Symphony and some Mozart. I got home and realized this is, like, really great. And a great alternative to rock and roll, because I'm sick of electric guitars 24-7. And one thing leads to the next. It's a, you can really go down the rabbit hole with classical music, you know? Also, I was a big jazz fan already, so it wasn't that big a leap. Because I, you know, I played the drums since I was a kid. And, you know, drummers always love love jazz. So, from listening like, from Duke Ellington to getting from Duke Ellington to Mozart, well, it wasn't that weird. And I, I love the way you write about classical music. You bring the same writing sensibilities and style and humor and joy, and you plug it into the classical world, which is normally... I mean, I grew up in Manhattan. I remember WQXR, which was Mm -hmm. about the driest radio station in the universe. (laughs) It gets worse. I listen to WQXR. I I, I enjoy it because... And I learned a lot of things. If I heard something that I liked, you know, I wrote it down. And then I went to a record store when one still had to do such a thing. You know, to get it, you hear something and say, wow, what the hell was that? Brahms? Gotta check that out. And so I would. The worst, though, was, ah, boy, I can't remember the call letters in New York, but it was the easy listening station. Oh, right. This is what, this is what my father listened to. It was Muzak. Yep. Like, like the real thing, like capital M-U-Z-A-K with the registered trademark on it. It was like real, legit, honest-to-God elevator music. I was like, why would you want to listen to this in your car? I mean, are you afraid you're going to fall asleep and like, 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 like crash? It was a very odd choice, but boy, he hated rock and roll because it was too low. It's low culture. That was a big problem, you know, with my dad and me. He saw what I did was low culture. 
certainly hated it when I was doing the girly magazines and the wrestling magazine and also that I played in a punk rock band. But the weird thing was, by the time I started getting into classical music, and I began to write about classical music, and I wrote about it with the enthusiasm of a rock and roll guy, I'm not an authority in classical music. There's no way I could compete with some guy from the New York Times, you know, or you know, the guys in the New Yorker. I mean, these guys are great writers. They're very knowledgeable. They really know what the hell they're talking about. So I came at it with that unhinged enthusiasm. And the people I was writing for really loved it. And the people at Carnegie Hall really loved it because no one had really described Mozart in these sort of terms that are usually reserved for you know, rock concerts. Mm-hmm. They liked it. It's hard. They were, thought maybe they'd reach a younger audience. So it was good. They told my dad, you know what? I've been writing about classical music for the local paper. You think, you know, Dad, I'm, please be proud of me. I'm doing something. And I got shot, you know, right out of the water with that. It's like, no, you don't understand. And... I don't know his Beethoven was better than my Beethoven somehow. Um, you know, right. it you, wasn't the it, same thing. It's kind of like you don't have any right to like Beethoven. That's right. You can't join this club because I thought you liked punk rock. Right. Well, I do. Well, then what do you know about Beethoven? <laughs> I like Beethoven. What am I going to tell you? I like lots, lots of stuff. I like blues music. I like, you know, I, I, like, I like weird, like, Nigerian highlife music. You, you know, I'm going to tell you, I like, I like rock steady. I like, you know, dulcimer music from, from Appalachia. And I've, Came a little late to it, but man, Mozart's my guy. And the weird thing is, my father, I found out, didn't know anything about classical music. You know, it's like Charlie Tuna. You remember the, the yeah. tuna fish that, uh-huh. that I talked about? Yeah. It's just like, it's a pose. He wants you to know that he has good taste. And, you know, Char <laughs> Starkist wants tunas that taste good. Yeah. <laughs> so to end, would you be willing to read something from your book? Oh, I, I came. To, I came to work unprepared. I didn't. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. I'm, I'm sorry. I would love to. And you know, we're on a book tour right now, and reading and storytelling is what I, I love to do. And I don't have a copy in front of me. Oddly, huh. I'll tell you. I'm looking in my bag right now to make sure that I didn't bring it. And what I have in my bag is a Kurt Vonnegut book and a book by uh, Raymond Chandler, two of my favorite authors. And I couldn't decide what to read on the subway this morning when I was coming. To do these interviews. Well, you I want could, me to read something from Kurt Vonnegut or Raymond Chandler? I can help you out. Uh, no, I I read <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut a long time ago, and I read uh, Raymond Chandler too. I could read this myself. It's it's really the, just the last two paragraphs of the book, which I thought reflect a lot of yeah, what, I, what you're writing. I, I, listen, uh, spoiler alert, but go for it. Is the middle of the night when I finished reading this, but it just moved me. You know, I really enjoyed reading the book. I laughed and I, and I cried. I cried at the end of the book. Oh man! Oh, I thank d- you so much. I mean, that really is the greatest compliment an author can get. I mean, I love it when people tell me they laugh. But we, you know, if you make someone cry with your writing, I mean, a lot of men have been telling me that. I got all these emails from guys saying, I was reading your book on a plane, and I was crying, and the flight attendant came over to see if I was okay. <laughs> oh, it's Mike Edison, it's his book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very flattered that I was able to do that. I obviously worked you know, very hard on the book and tried to strike the right tone. You know, there's this joie de vivre that I like to talk about, and you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to see someone die so angry. And, and I spent a long time trying to find compassion for my father. Yeah, and what comes through, what really came through for me, really hit home at the end was was your humanity and that's what made me cry that through this whole thing it built just gradually built up to this this deep sense of humanity that this person that you are with this very wide range of lowbrow and a deep intelligence and talent for writing 
are a deeply human person. Well, thank you very much again. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think, I think I've learned a lot about my own book and my own work from talking to you. <laughs> I mean that very sincerely. You know, you know, sometimes I get too close to it. It's nice to hear someone else you know, come at it maybe, maybe sideways. You know, I've been like, staring at the thing for so long. But I'm really flattered, and thank you very much. And thank you for laughing, because I, you know, I don't want people to think either this is just a book about you know, some heartbreaking disaster. You know, I, th- I, think, I think making people laugh is how you keep them interested in the story. Well, that's the thing. It, it's so much more than that. And that's what's so great about this book. And I, I really didn't expect to enjoy this book anywhere near this much. So I want to thank you as well, and thank you for, for this interview as well. Well, I'm really proud of this one, and I think it's got an important message that people can resonate with. And uh, hey, the world needs to be happy. Enough, enough fear already, right? Yeah. Thank you very, very much for reading the book and being so thoughtful. I really appreciate it. And please visit me at MikeEdison.com. There's some rock and roll and some comics and some other stuff on my website. And we're on the road right now uh, promoting this, and I do read from my book. I have a piano player with me, and we try to make every reading a real event and have a lot of fun with it. I'm trying to turn the concept of what a reading is kind of on its head. Can't be boring. Life's too short for that. Yep. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that was Mike Edison. He's the author of You Are a Complete Disappointment, a triumphant memoir of failed expectations. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Bye.